0: you're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Melissa. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead this hour. Yields spiked globally this morning after the ISM prices paid index reversed higher again. It's the last thing the Fed wants to see right now. German boons, by the way, were positive. We're going to look at which tools will be more effective in battling these price spikes. Is it rate hikes or is it cutting the balance sheet? And a huge day of earnings is upon us, including results from PayPal tonight. The stock is down 25% in three months. Remember that abandoned pursuit of Pinterest? We'll look at what can turn things around. Plus, we've got results from AMD, Alphabet, and GM. And we will get you ready for all of those reports coming up in earnings exchange. But first, to the man over there, Dom Chu has our market number.
1: I am over here, and you're over there. It always always feels like we're almost closer these (laughs) days. It feels more normal with each passing day. Anyway, the markets are trying to normalize after what's been an abysmal month in the month of January for the major indexes. If you look at the Dow Industrials, the S&P and the NASDAQ, We've seen either end, either side of that unchanged level here. So modestly higher for the Dow, just about 20 points. We'll call it just about flat. The S&P 4518 is the level there, just about flat as well. And the NASDAQ composite, one-tenth of one percent gains, 14,257 the last trade. So again, trying to find some footing, maybe some stabilization after all that selling pressure from January. One place we are seeing a bit more of a bid, again, three straight days worth of gains right now, is in the Dow Jones Transportation Index. That particular ETF that tracks at ticker IYT, the iShares version, up 3% right now. You can see here it's an 8% bounce off the recent lows that we've seen just in the last week or so. And one of the big reasons behind that big jump in the Transportation Index has to do with earnings from UPS, the single best performing stock in the entire S&P 500 right now. And I get to put a gold star next to it because it hit a record high in trading so far today. UPS is up 13 percent, much better than expected results financial wise from profits and revenues. Also a dividend hike over there. Exxon Mobil, more mixed, better earnings. But the revenues came in shy. Sirius XM, for those people listening on Sirius XM channel 112 right now, that's those shares are up about 4 percent on better than expected results. And then One of the original meme stocks, AMC Entertainment pre-announces some of its results, giving some guidance for fourth quarter results, up about 10% right now on that. So watch those names, but UPS... Not often we can say a big industrial shipping type company is the top performer in the S&P, but it's up big today, 13%, Kel. Back Incredible,
0: Dom, thank you very much. While Fed watchers have all been upping their forecasts for rate hikes, in some cases to seven this year, yesterday the Fed's Esther George said cutting the balance sheet more quickly would lessen the need for so many rate hikes. So what should the Fed do here? Just in time, we have the results of a new flash Fed survey looking at this very issue. Steve Leisman is here with those results, Steve.
2: Yeah, you got questions, Kelly. We got answers. The CNBC flash Fed survey. We did this after the Fed meeting to see if the outlook changed in the prior survey. It finds our respondents not quite as hawkish on rates as pricing in the Fed's funds futures market for those five rate hikes that are there now. Among the 38 respondents, the average looks for 3.7 hikes this year. How do you read that? It really means Three hikes are built in, and there's a debate with a leaning towards a fourth hike. The average fund rate is seen at just over 1% by the end of the year. Next year, another three hikes are forecast, with the funds rate rising to 1.8%. Only one respondent sees five hikes, and there is little support at all for a 50 basis point rate hike, at least in March. The outlook for inflation, now running at 7% year over year, is for a decline, down to 4.2% and a 2.9 by the end of 2023. So maybe this more dovish outlook on rates comes with a belief that inflation will indeed come down and what the Fed does will work. Another reason. Respondents are looking for more balance sheet runoff than the prior survey, a la Esther George, as Kelly said. The average looks for the balance sheet to begin running off in July, and the total $460 billion this year, and that is up from the prior forecast of $380 billion. That grows to $930 billion next year, up from 860. billion. And $2.5 trillion over two years and eight months of runoff. That is less overall than the prior survey. So the course of inflation, it's going to ultimately determine how much the Fed does. And guess what? The course of inflation will, of course, be influenced by Fed policy. Kelly? Certainly will. Steve,
0: stay right there. My next guest is more in favor of using the balance sheet than rate hikes, saying that will do more to reduce excess liquidity. Joining us now is Bill Lee, Milken Institute's chief economist. Bill, welcome. Tell me why you prefer balance sheet and what exactly you'd like to see.
3: Well, everyone got on the rate increase uh, bandwagon when Chair Powell said the labor market is very strong. But what we see from the latest GDP numbers is that the economy itself is starting to slow down off of the peak uh, growth of the post-COVID recovery. But the excesses from the... Fed uh, uh, easing of conditions is still showing up in the housing market and asset markets. So the easiest way to sop up that excess liquidity that's causing these difficulties is to use the balance sheet. And the rate increases will be governed, as Chair Powell said, strictly by what's going on in the real economy. And I think people are underestimating the degree to which the U.S. economy is slowing down. Final sales only grew by 2% last uh, last quarter. And most of that growth came from inventories, which was a a desired increase in inventories. But some of the inventories are undesired.
0: Well, let me stick with what you're saying, Bill, which is that if you want to remove the excesses in, in places like the housing market without slowing the economy, you'd rather see them run down the balance sheet, um, which would mean ultimately you know, sales of these treasuries. But wouldn't that itself also push up rates? It's arguable that that would push up long rates more than if they raise rates on the short end, which so far has been flattening the curve.
3: Well, it's actually a very controversial degree to which the balance sheet itself transmits to the rest of the economy. It's very clear that the balance sheet affects liquidity, and the sectors that are sensitive to liquidity in the financial markets are affected, but it's not across-the-board kind of dampening of demand that you get with interest rates. So I think the, the the whole policy of trying to be strategic and targeted in how the Fed responds is very critical here. And I think the problem of going overboard, which has been the problem every Fed policy move in the past where they've gone too much, too far, too fast with interest rates. We now have a second tool where we can get rid of specific excesses with the balance sheet. And that's George is absolutely right. She's the most hawkish of the committee. And she is even preferring balance sheet over rates. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, that's what made it so eye-catching yesterday, Steve. So if this were the case, you know, I mean, let's maybe first ask if you think it will be the case, because we haven't heard as much talk about you know, the balance sheet. We've heard even from uh, the Atlanta Fed's Raphael Bostic. He said, you know, I would support a 50-point hike if we needed one, if conditions changed that way. But he wasn't necessarily saying, you know, then I'd immediately want to see a faster rundown on the balance sheet.
2: So uh, this goes back to the group of Midwestern hawks that we've been talking about, Kelly. Uh, it began with Jim Bullard, and then uh, Governor Waller also has talked about this. He's also from St. Louis, uh, Kansas City. I think you could put it in the Midwest, and we have yet to hear necessarily from Esther George about this. There is a contingent on the committee, for sure, who wants to use the balance sheet, sell more on the long end, let put pressure there, let rates rise there, and perhaps do fewer rate hikes on the short end And also be careful not to be um, uh, flattening the curve. That said, after Esther George said that again yesterday, I went back and looked how Chair Powell responded to that. And all I can say is he seems to be agnostic over the issue. Hmm. Uh, At the time he spoke, the spread between the 210 was 75 basis points. He seemed to be rather happy with that. It's since fallen to around, I don't know, 60 and change or so. Um, So he didn't have to deal with it. Um, I don't know that that's his preference. It was not the impression I got from listening to it. I think, though, and I think maybe Bill would answer this better. I I don't think the Fed wants to get involved in yield curve engineering because it's just a matter of massive uncertainty for the Fed.
0: Right. But maybe let me put the question a little bit differently, Bill. Why do you think the economy would do better with higher rates on the long end than on the short end? Because I typically think of the 10 years more of a benchmark for borrowing, but obviously you know, short end rates matter as well. But short end rates tend to compensate savers. So you know, why do you think it would be better to potentially see, see longer rates rise?
3: Well, it's the way you see the economy growing or not growing, it's very spotty right now. There's segments of the economy that are slowing down. There are segments of the economy that are exceedingly strong and probably will become even stronger once the seasonal housing market comes back in, in the spring. So if you really have the sense that the, the economy is really us having uneven sectors of growth, then you really want a more targeted instrument. So the balance sheet is absolutely the, the tool that could address the liquidity problems. Steve is absolutely right. Chair Powell is very agnostic, in fact, kind of leans away from using the balance sheet because we're not sure how the balance sheet will trend submit into the economy. If you ask any economist, what's the equivalence between a, tr- a, a couple of billion dollars worth of balance sheet versus a couple of basis points on the Fed funds rate? No one can tell you. And I think that's the danger of using the balance sheet. But what we are targeting right now are the excesses from excess liquidity. And you're right. Mortgage rates are governed more by the 10 year the 10 year uh, uh, treasury. But the amount of money that's available for lending has to do with the amount of liquidity in the financial markets. And that's where it's excessive.
0: Very, very interesting. I know a little wonky, but really such an important debate for the whole economy right now. Bill and Steve, thank you both for your time, Bill Lee and our own Steve Leisman. My next guest is reevaluating equities due to changes in the Fed's messaging, but also finding some attractive entry points in the pullback. Joining me is Chris Retzler, Needham Funds Managing Director. Chris, it's great to see you. Let's start with, if you want to respond to the discussion we were just having, what are you bracing for or anticipating from the Fed this year?
4: So what we are facing is a lot more volatility um, as the Fed is taking accommodation out of the market. Um, You know, there's certainly a lot of discussion as to how many rate hikes there are going to be, you know, how the yield curve is flattening. Uh, You know, the flattening is is concerning, uh, you know, further out because uh, that just shows, you know, slowing growth. But I think that there's some other factors that we really want to pay attention to. And we're hearing from companies, you know, in earnings season that's already gotten started is, you know, how are the supply chains, uh, component shortages, things like that, that are right now quite inflationary. Uh, You know, you even look into agriculture, energy, very inflationary right now. What are we going to do to improve those situations? So I think that there's a lot of variables that can Uh, Be adjusted throughout the course of the year, and I think that that's what the Fed is going to be dependent upon is the data. Um, But for investors in equities, uh, you know, the multiples that we got to over the past couple years was very much driven by this accommodation. Uh, So we are cautious as that accommodation is removed, and I think that investors need to take a longer-term view. Um, But with pullbacks like we've seen in January, we were finding some some areas that we could deploy some money.
0: Yeah. So, again, you're you are cautious. You know, I think we're all watching, you know, feeling that way a little bit. So let's talk about some of the stocks that you like here. You like some of the semi capital equipment names. Uh, You like some of the build out, you know, for wireless communications and that sort of thing. What are some stocks you think people can buy right here?
4: So you're exactly right. Semicap equipment is in almost a renaissance, and what we heard from Intel looking to build out in Ohio uh, the past few days uh, is really fantastic for the country. And I think that if Congress can get around to passing the CHIPS Act for semiconductor manufacturing, I think that's going to be a great tailwind for that area. You know, companies we like there for larger cap investors is, you know, Lam Research, Applied Materials, But if you want to drill down into some of the, you know, kind of mid-cap areas, a company we like is MKS Instruments. It's going through right now an acquisition of a smaller business that's a platform. And we think once that gets behind it, uh, you know, they're going to be able to drive the synergies and the growth. But again, a lot of semi-cap equipment is facing shortages of components. And it's really amazing. Uh, You know, you need the equipment to alleviate those pressures uh, but they're not able to get the components, so there's some stuff uh, that should be done in that area.
0: Fair enough. And then, what about on the you know you like Sienna, you like a name called Infinera, a couple other plays on that side of the equation?
4: Yeah. So the build out of communications, uh, the digitization of our you know global economy continues. That's not slowing. We've seen the FAA and the you know, wireless carriers begin to make some improvements in in that deployment. Uh, But one company that we really like in that area is two six ticker IIVI. It's going through also the closing of an acquisition of a company called coherent. It was announced last year, but we think that the management team is going to drive a lot of synergies out of this uh, combination. um, And that should close by the end of the quarter. So, you know, really two ideas that are more event driven, uh, but really good secular growth tailwinds to to their businesses. Yeah,
0: and companies, you know, investment approach that if you don't ever wanna worry about the Fed's balance sheet versus rate hikes and liquidity and the yield curve again, maybe here are some places to look. Chris, thanks for your time today. It's great to have you. Thank you. Chris Retzler joining me from Needham. Still ahead, PayPal is coming off its worst January ever. From its highs, it's now down more than 40%. But with earnings after the bell, should you buy now and risk paying for it later? And if you're looking for a stock that's only down 10, 20, or 30% from its highs, we'll take your pick between Alphabet, GM, and AMD. All three are set to report after the bell today. We'll give you the action, the story, and the trade in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, a quick look at the Dow heat map. Only a third of the index is positive right now, with Boeing and Chevron leading the way, Microsoft and UNH, the biggest laggards. We're back in a moment.
5: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
0: Welcome back. Uh, PayPal shares are slightly higher today. They're up about half a percent ahead of earnings. We're down 8% though year to date and more than 40% below the all-time highs or at least the 52-week highs. My next guest has a buy on the stock, still sees 50% upside even with it trading still around a forward multiple of 35. Jason Kupferberg covers the payment stocks at Bank of America and he joins me now. Jason, welcome. Thank you. PayPal has been like the story that can't get anything right over the past year, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of people even looking back and saying maybe they shouldn't have done the, the PayPal eBay split off. And, you know, they've kind of it seems like they're searching around for the right partner or the right vision of, of the future. Why do you like the stock and what do you think they could do here to unlock that value?
6: 2021 was kind of a year of two halves for PayPal. In the first half of 2021, they were continuing to ride the wave of increased e-com spending um, as we had not yet really fully reopened after the first phase of the pandemic. They had an extremely upbeat analyst day in February of 2021. The stock did reach around 300 in the spring of last year, and they were continuing to get significant benefits from stimulus that was coursing through the veins of the economy. Fast forward to the second half of the year, and particularly the third quarter earnings report in November, and they had to backtrack a bit on their outlook for 2021. While they are coming out ahead of where they originally expected to at the start of the year, they did get a little too aggressive during the course of the year in terms of the magnitude with which they raised their guidance. But we still believe that their overarching strategy towards becoming a super app makes a lot of sense, and we think that they're very well positioned.
0: I have to imagine what we've heard from Visa is positive for a lot of names in the payment space on just the economics of, do we call it post pandemic? I mean, it just seems like there is a little bit of a of a pickup lately. Should that lift all boats?
6: It will lift all boats to varying degrees, arguably. But both Visa and MasterCard did make some positive comments around the resiliency of e-commerce spending, specifically in the context of their overall portfolio, despite the fact that we've gone through uh, some amount of reopening. Now, obviously, a little bit of that went backwards with Omicron over the last couple of months. So around the edges, you would expect that to be uh, a little bit of a benefit and a tailwind to a company like PayPal.
0: Tell me about the super app and why you like uh, that concept when it seems like this is a world that benefits from specialization and narrowness. And we hear a lot of other, I guess you could call them fintech apps like Robinhood, from a different point of view, kind of want to be everything to everybody. Is that really the right approach for PayPal?
6: You're right. The, The race is definitely on to see who will be the winner or the winners in the context of this pursuit of the super app strategy. But one advantage that's very important that we think PayPal enjoys is is its huge entrenched base of active users, both on the consumer side and the merchant side of their network. So that's very difficult for anyone else to replicate. And so as they move beyond their traditional core checkout button service and move into areas like buy now, pay later and crypto equity trading, savings accounts, et cetera. We think that they have an excellent chance to be one of the long-term winners in that super app battle.
0: And finally, just give us a little bit of a curtain raiser tonight. It sounds like you're less worried about revenue than maybe profit margins.
6: Very true. Very true. Um, they did put an initial marker out there last quarter for about 18% revenue growth in 2022. On a constant currency basis, we think something in that neighborhood is still achievable. Maybe it's 16, 17. I don't think it's much lower than that. On margins, though, we do think that the uh, sell-side consensus um, of sell-side analysts is a little bit too high. There are going to be some margin headwinds in 2022, most notably some uh, normalization of provision expense uh, as it relates to the uh, loans that they have on their balance sheet after they were able to reverse a lot of those provisions during the course of 2021. So that may be an underappreciated headwind in 2022, but the good news is many investors that we speak to, we believe already understand this dynamic quite well.
0: All right, you think it's worth 265, you've got a buy rating and we'll see what tonight brings. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Kelly. Jason Kupferberg with B of A. Coming up, CNBC's uh, post-SPAC index is down 22% in this month. January was also the slowest month for new listings in nearly two years. Is the SPAC mania over or just hitting a rough patch? We'll explore that. Plus, why Pfizer's COVID vaccine for kids under five could be available by the end of this month, despite those two doses not yielding desired results in trials. We have all the latest ahead. Welcome back, everybody. Fluctuating February, we'll call it, because the markets are trying to figure out whether they want to go up or down today. The Dow's been up almost 100. It's been down 150. Right now, it's down nine. The S&P's down two, and the NASDAQ is negative again as well. Consumer discretionary is the biggest laggard over the year, over the past 12 months, and the furthest from its recent high. But we're seeing some big moves in the sector today. Take a look at some of the travel and leisure names in particular. Between yesterday and today's gains, the cruise lines have now turned positive for 2022. Carnival is up 5.5% today. Norwegian and Royal, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Royal Caribbean by a similar amount. Sports betting stocks are right behind him. The whole thing has kind of a reopening feel to it today. DraftKings, Golden Nugget, those are up 6.5%, IGT higher as well. DraftKings and Golden Nugget, by the way, are still uh, facing declines of more than 60% from their recent highs, so just put that into perspective. But the casinos also feeling the action today. LVS lagging, but still the biggest gainer year to date, up 18%, adding nearly 2% today. Caesars is up 5.5%. And check out the Amusement parks rallying after SeaWorld made a takeover bid to acquire Cedar Fair. Cedar Fair says it's reviewing the unsolicited proposal from SeaWorld. We'll have to wait and see what happens to ticker F-U-N for Cedar Fair up 14.5% today and notably SeaWorld up 3.5%. So we've heard the administration not a big fan of big deals, but maybe they'll let the amusement parks go through. To Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel.
7: Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. Russian President Vladimir Putin says that He's open to more talks about easing tensions over Ukraine. However, he says that the U.S. could drag Russia into war with new sanctions. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, meantime, says that Putin is holding a gun to Ukraine's head in an effort to redraw the security map for all of Europe. And on the news tonight, why U.S. officials say that China is posing an even greater threat than ever before. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And back here in the States, all classes are being held remotely at UCLA because of threats. The school says that the person who made the threat is not in California and is under observation by out-of-state law enforcement. Federal agencies have also been involved in investigating the threats. And in Denmark, most COVID restrictions have been dropped. Officials say that COVID rules are not needed, even though, of course, Omicron cases are rising. They say that that's because of high vaccination rates and a health system that is keeping up with recent infections a different take there. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Absolutely,
0: Rahel, thanks. Still ahead, three big names reporting after the bell today. We've got the action, the story, and the trade for Alphabet, GM, and AMD. They're all positive right now as the broader markets try to hang in there. We're back in a moment. Welcome back everyone. It's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange, where we got the action, the story, and the trade on three names set to report results. We'll kick things off with Alphabet today. They're reporting after the bell. They got dragged down with the rest of tech last month, but they're up about 7% since Microsoft's beat last week. Joining me now with the story on Alphabet, our own Deirdre Bosa and Delano Sapporo, New Street Advisor's founder and CMC contributor, is here to give us the trades today. Welcome to both of you. Deirdre, a lot of eyes on this report tonight. (laughs)
8: Yeah, this one is hotly anticipated. And following in the high bar that was set by Apple and Microsoft, uh, Alphabet has been one of the outperforming things, so there's a lot of pressure on. We're going to be looking for crowd growth and competition there. Google, of course, is a distant third, but they've deployed a different strategy, and that is using some of their massive amount of cash to actually invest in. In some of their cloud customers in exchange for long-term contracts. So it'll be interesting from that point of view in terms of that capital allocation. Uh, Alphabet, of course, doesn't issue a dividend, but one analyst actually suggested that perhaps issuing a dividend, though it still may be unlikely, could actually be part of its regulatory strategy. We know that Alphabet is under so much scrutiny from regulators, and perhaps it could be a chance to build some goodwill with its shareholders by returning some money. And don't forget, Kelly, the company has what, $168 billion in its cash pile. So more than enough money to do that, to get ahead in cloud, keep putting money into Waymo and some of the other moonshots. Why pay lobbyists when you can just pay out a dividend? It's interesting in light of AT&T's dividend cut today. Delano, let me turn
0: to you. The cloud growth rate, we saw a slow at Microsoft, but they said it was going to experience an uptick this quarter. Is that what you think is going to be the main focus here?
5: Yeah, I think that is going to be one of the main focuses, as well as the ad side of the business. So, obviously, that kind of versioned when we saw the reopening, you you more pointed to some of those stocks um, during the market update, that reopening helped the search side of the business and the ad revenue side of the business for Alphabet. And I think that continues. That's a high contention point that I want to continue to watch. I think you also do want to watch the other areas of the business that are smaller. You mentioned Google Cloud Services. I think that's also an area that we're going to see continued growth in, as well as YouTube. Engagement is ticking up um, across the YouTube platform, um, with, especially with younger younger content creators and viewers. So that's an area of a company, obviously, an asset they bought in 2006 that is now doing over $7 billion in revenue per quarter quarter. I think that's an area that you also want to watch the growth rate right on. So we obviously are holding and staying long in Alphabet. And I think it's going to be an area of an opportunity for, for investors to look after earnings, how it trades, and if there's an opportunity for them as well.
0: There's the stats, Deirdre. 47 out of 50 people on the street have a buy, three have a hold, zero have a sell. <laughs>
8: Yeah, I mean, the street loves this name, especially in terms of its value. It's seen as perhaps a more reasonable valuation than the other mega cap tech names. So you do see a lot of analysts uh, talking it up and saying that this is going to be good. It's also a reopening play, right? Because remember that a lot of the digital advertising comes from travel names, and that's why it saw such a bump up last year. Whenever you see this reopening, a lot of those ad dollars go to Google. Delano mentioned YouTube. That's always kind of my favorite place to look for this company because it's just amazing how much this segment has grown how much now it's making up in digital advertising and when you want to, when it comes down to it that revenue is almost the size of Netflix so wow. this is just one unit inside of alphabet very diversified in terms of a, in terms of what it wants to do, but still as Delano said uh, what is 80% is still digital advertising behemoth so so many different parts of this company are
0: and that explains the the sentiment on it Deirdre thank you we appreciate it our dear jabosa next we turn to General Motors the street keeping a close on guidance as automakers navigate the ongoing chip shortage we heard Tesla talking about. Also, maybe the possible return of GM's dividend after being suspended at the start of the pandemic. The shares up about one and a half percent today, but they're still 20 percent down from their recent high. Phil LeBeau has the story here. What are you going to be watching, Phil?
9: The guidance, Kelly. 2022, what do they expect on two fronts? One, what happens in terms of rebuilding the inventory. We know that it's gonna increase this year because production will increase, but to what extent? How much clarity do they give us in that regard? And then the issue is chips and inflation. What's the outlook there? We know that the chip supply is improving. But look, Elon Musk, and we've heard from other auto executives who have said it's going to be a strained situation when it comes to chip supply for a good chunk of 2022. Add in inflation, which is obviously going to hurt them on the cost side. And then it also comes across in terms of how much are you able to charge for the vehicles? Uh, Those are
5: the things that people will
9: be focused on.
0: Delano, why are you not a buyer here?
5: A couple of reasons, I think when we're thinking about the, I'm following the money and they're shifting that strategy obviously. To be more of an EV play with the 30 billion in spend that's going to be spent uh, to kind of launching their EV strategy uh, up to 2025. So I think when I'm looking at that, I want to be in the, the the market leader in that play. And I think you know obviously Tesla in my mind is still the leader and continuing to be the leader. I do think there's areas for for General Motors to obviously make a play. They're diversifying their revenue, just being from obviously auto financing and selling you know vehicles to to now to more diversifying into software and new business with with different things they're doing with Cruise um, and their bright shop. So I think that's reason why i'm staying out it's been about flat throughout the course of the year i think for investors if you're thinking a strategy is going to play out over time you'd want to look for an opportunity but we're staying out of the stock right now kelly
0: and phil thinking about the dividend i understand that they would maybe want to signal you know we're getting back towards normalization but don't they need all that cash to invest in the ev transition right now
9: well they've got the money the, the money is, it, it's not like they are still hurting, and that's why they don't have the dividend. I think that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they reinstate the dividend. But in terms of the money that they've already allocated for EVs and AVs, which is $35 billion through 2025, uh, remember, a good chunk has already been spent, and the rest has basically been allocated for already.
0: Wow. All right. And finally, Delano, does the reinstatement of the dividend affect in any way your view on the stock?
5: I think that would be you know, a play here when you're looking for cash now as far as investors. Right? Getting that dividend would be more of an attractive play for me uh, because, one, you can take that dividend and reinvest it in other areas. But that would be more attractive play for me there, Kelly.
0: All right, we'll see if they do it. And a quick programming note, GM CEO Mary Barra will be on Squawk on the Street tomorrow to talk about those earnings in a first on CNBC. Don't miss it. And, Phil, our thanks very much, Phil Lebeau. Speaking of the chip shortage, let's wrap things up with AMD. Also reporting tonight, Street looking for around 76 cents a share, $4.5 billion in revenue, but shares are down 20% to start the year. They saw a brief bounce, though, after rival NXP gave some rosy guidance last night. Christina Parts here with the story on that one. Christina? Yeah, we're expecting revenue to climb, but at a slower rate. And so uh, AMD has actually beat earnings forecasts for the past 10 s- past quarters, which is pretty darn good for the company. But like you said, the stock has been
8: down. We're going to be looking at demand from the auto sector, gaming, as well as data storage. There are some analysts that said that maybe PC sales would be weaker. But if you look at Microsoft and Apple as a barometer, that thesis may be flipped on its head. Uh, there are some concerns, too, about the z
0: acquisition. So AMD is looking to buy z They just got the Greenland a few days ago from
8: Chinese regulators. It still needs to pass here in the United States, but that could be a next a nice little extra cushion to add to revenue uh, in the upcoming quarters. And then you have, you know, the
0: supply chain issues that you've raised. But keep in mind, AMD has a pretty good relationship with Taiwan semiconductors.
8: So that might be a positive for the company moving forward.
0: All right. And Delano, it's kind of been the poster child for the sell-off in the semi-space, but you've been adding on the dips?
5: Yes, it, it certainly has been, and as you mentioned, 23% down year-to-date, approximately. Um, you're seeing the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index only down around 16 to 17%. So it's been, you know, quite quite heavily sold, and that's why we've been adding uh, to this position, a position that we've been holding through for a while. And I think a lot of the things that were just mentioned is is reasons why. Obviously, you're still seeing strong demand a spot across their their strong business units, and then you're also looking at a company that has great margins and that mar- those margins, those operating cash flow. Uh, from those great margins are being used to reinvest for top line growth which will obviously go down to the bottom to earnings for shareholders so so those are the reasons i do think um obviously looking at the close of z if, if that goes through it would be obviously a strong um, um thing for amd but that's the reasons why we like this company and it's been possibly a bit oversold so there's opportunities for investors to get in
0: yeah and you got to hand it to nxp and what's probably the toughest of the spaces right now on autos they seem to kind of uh, quell some of the bigger concerns there What does it say to you about, you know, the broader semi-cliff concerns that some have or or how? I mean, especially after that Tesla call where they talked about how constrained they're still going to be on production because of Chips Delano. What do you what would you do with the whole space right now?
5: So there's definitely still going to be volatility. And as, as we mentioned, the shortages, supply chain issues. So investors have to gauge, you know, one, how long out they believe that's going to be. We've seen that guidance be pushed out for a lot of management. And so that may be near-term volatility, especially in a lot of these spaces. So investors have to, one, be ready for that um, and buy opportunities that qualify for, them. For us, we're going to be looking for opportunities where there's oversold and be able to buy um, for these names that we like and we have high conviction on, Kelly.
0: All right. So this is one space that you definitely like. Delano, thanks, Delano, support with our trade screen. Christina, thank you as well. Christina Partzinevelis tracking AMD. And don't miss the CEO, Lisa Su, in a first on CNBC interview tomorrow, also on Squawk on the Street. It's going to be a busy morning. Up next, children under five could soon be rolling up their sleeves for their first COVID vaccines, Pfizer's plan, and why the term booster may not apply to younger kids' third shots. Talk about that next. Welcome back, everybody. Pfizer's COVID shots for kids under five could be in arms by the end of the month. Meg Terrell is here with a progress report and the hurdles Pfizer, uh, Pfizer faces on this road to authorization. Meg?
10: Hey, Kelly. Well, this would be a much faster timeline than we had been expecting even as recently as last week. Remember, back in December, Pfizer gave an update for this age group saying essentially that two doses at this very low dose, it's a tenth what's given to adults, uh, was not enough to generate a strong enough immune response in kids ages two to four, even though it did generate a strong enough response in even younger kids ages six months to two. So they decided to add a third dose across all age groups in this trial, uh, thinking that would be necessary to add the Um, increased protection. Importantly, they said no safety concerns were identified here. But with that third dose, we expected not to be seeing data even until the end of March or early April, pushing back the availability of this vaccine by several months. However, last night, the Washington Post came out reporting that the FDA has apparently asked Pfizer to file an application with just the two-dose data that it has so far so that the FDA can start reviewing that uh, and if it looks strong enough, uh, potentially clear that as Pfizer continues to uh, review and. Um examine what happens when they give a third shot. Uh, now Pfizer is not commenting on this. It says that it's still uh, looking uh, at the study at the two doses and the three doses and putting that together uh, and they'll share new updates as they become available. Uh, but Kelly, the reporting suggests this could happen, the application really anytime today. Uh, and we could see the FDA start to act on this very quickly. It will really depend on what the data look like, but potentially getting this out there by the end of this month, Kelly.
0: All right. Very interesting. We'll have a lot more questions as this uh, carries out, Meg. But for now, we appreciate the update. Thank you, our Meg Terrell, Meg Terrell. Up next, not even the muni market immune to January's volatility. After posting their biggest January declines ever, are there more red flags ahead for this space? We'll discuss that. And during Feb, we are celebrating Black History and featuring some of our CNBC contributors. Here's Robert Johnson sharing how he achieved success. No.
3: As an entrepreneur, there's some gene that floats around
6: inside you that makes you want to achieve things that others may feel
3: is not possible.
6: My inspiration came from believing in myself and having friends who encouraged me. And I think if more black Americans had that encouragement, support, and level of confidence
3: presented to them, the
6: more black Americans can achieve their success as I have.
0: Back to the exchange everybody the muni bond market unable to escape january's volatility after that record 2021 muni yields are now spiking risk premiums are jumping and prices falling as the fed prepares to raise rates last week muni saw 1.4 billion dollars of outflows the largest since april of 2020 according to refinitive returns on the s p muni bond index index are at their lowest levels in 16 years sitting at negative 2.3%. Joining me to explain this, Tom Koslick, head of municipal research at Hilltop Securities. Tom, what's going on here?
11: Hi, Kelly. Yeah, and you know, inv- as you very well know, investors don't like uncertainty. They don't like volatility. Municipal investors, especially, don't like the uncertainty. That's one of the reasons that they're in the sector. And the Fed was there. Were a lot of head shakes back. There was a lot of back and forth. And this is one of the things that really I think caused the outflows last month.
0: So, you know, just thinking through it, like you said, I can understand if people are seeing outflows in or declines in ARC k and some high-flying stocks, and they go, geez, I better go somewhere safer. But why were muni investors so panicked? You know, when the Fed raises rates or when rates start to move up on that concern, what typically happens to returns in munis over the next couple of months or years?
11: Yeah, I think that one of the big reasons is And this has really been playing out even since last summer. There were institutional investors that I was talking to uh, last summer into the fall who for months have been preparing for what it is that we're seeing now. Uh, One of the things that they've been doing is they've been holding some cash on the side uh, to make it so they can uh, withstand any significant uh, or lengthy fund uh, outflows. Uh, One of the things that I'm starting to see now is I'm starting to see some bargain pickers. There are some folks who are sifting through the beaten down sectors, and and I'm and I'm all and that's on the institutional side, on the retail side. One of the things that I'm starting to see is, you know, in the healthcare sector, the uh, A-rated investment grade A-rated healthcare sector yields are they're not at the three percent level yet, but they're rising closer to the three percent level, and that is a psychological level. And all a lot of, if not all, the municipal yields have been rising. But that's one of the areas that I'm seeing on the retail side that's making so some retail investors. Are starting to get interested again.
0: Right. And like you said, you're looking at healthcare in particular. I mean, I think this uh, nice quote sums it up where one of the analysts was saying all the commotion is happening outside of our market. There wasn't a bankruptcy or some unforeseen event in munis. These are outside forces. Credit quality has been spectacular. Is there any reason to expect that might not be the case? I mean, as do we see, you know, stimulus funds kind of running out or any other hangover problems from the pandemic for state and local operations?
11: So one of the things that I've been talking about since the beginning of last year is the golden age of public finance. And I believe because of how it is that Omicron has evolved, uh, it was billed as being uh, more contagious but less deadly. But it is re- I mean, it is actually a lot more deadly than what I think a lot of people give it credit for. And I think that Omicron and just the idea that there's likely to be another wave in the summer and another wave in the fall, that's really creating some risk for this golden age of public finance that I've been talking about. But I think that state and local governments are more or less really insulated from that. I think that there are other sectors, uh, transportation, uh, healthcare, higher ed, that are going to be hit uh, harder, but I think that those are also areas where, if you're careful with selecting the right credits, there's some opportunity there.
0: Would there be any? I know it's hard to kind of recommend muni's because they're just you know so niche. But are there any spaces that you think people should start to poke around?
11: Yeah, I think that right now the places where I'm seeing the bargain hunters poke around in is you know the higher ed sector is a sector that was being beaten down even before COVID, and especially after COVID, the healthcare sector. Uh, the higher ed sector, uh, even outside of the, the beaten down area, single family housing is another sector that I continue to like as well.
0: Okay, cool. So then for anyone who's holding these securities right now, what kind of returns do you think they should anticipate for you know the duration of this year?
11: Well, I think that there could be some choppy uh, weeks. Uh, I don't think it's gonna be quite multiple long- months like we've seen in the past with regard to outflows. But I think that one of the things that I that one of the things that I, I am talking to investors about doing right now is it's really hard to time the market. You know, really right now, I mean, yields have already risen in the muni space, fifty or so basis points over the last month. I think, you know, we know that yields are going to continue to rise. The problem is for investors is that when yields and ratios are attractive to everyone, that then it very well could be late. Then there very well might not be any primary or secondary market supply for people to look at.
0: Yeah, fair enough. And a parting thought on the Fed and rates as we as we go here. Can you know what do you think is going to happen? Let's just call it with the ten year and the impact that that would have on people in this arena.
11: I think that there is probably even more volatility, uh, whether it be Fed induced or even economic data induced. The jobs number this Friday. I have a feeling that people are probably being a little too optimistic about that. So I really do think that there could be some. Uh, you know, choppy waters over the next couple of weeks. But I think that, uh, I think that we should look at those as opportunities, not necessarily, you know, setbacks that are gonna last for an extended period of time.
0: All right, Tom, it's great to have you here today. We appreciate it, thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Tom Koslick with Hilltop. Still ahead, one dozen, just 12. That's how many SPACs were listed in all of January. It marks a nearly two-year low. We'll talk about what's behind the slowdown and what's next for these vehicles next. Welcome back, everybody. Jack Dorsey just speaking about Bitcoin at a MicroStrategy panel moments ago. Let's get to Kate Rooney for the highlights. Kate?
12: Hey, Kelly. Yeah, this was an hour-long conversation with Block CEO Jack Dorsey and Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, two of the biggest Bitcoin bulls out there. And according to Dorsey, Bitcoin will be the native currency of the internet. He talked about the transparency, some of the staying power and security behind Bitcoin as well as as its potential to improve big tech companies. He talked about Twitter specifically. He, of course, stepped down as Twitter CEO, but says the social media company may have avoided some of its current problems with privacy and what he called surveillance capitalism that he says all stem from reliance on ad revenue.
9: If Bitcoin existed before Twitter started, I think we would see completely different business models. We wouldn't, I don't think we would be as dependent upon an advertising business model. I think there would be a much healthier balance on multiple business models at once.
12: And speaking of big tech, Dorsey also mentioned Facebook, of course now Meta, and its Diem cryptocurrency project. That was stalled for years and confirmed just this week that it's shutting down for good. Dorsey saying, quote, hopefully they learned a lot, but there was a lot of wasted effort and time And those two to three years could have been spent making Bitcoin more accessible for people around the world, which would have helped their Messenger product, Instagram, and WhatsApp. On Bitcoin versus Ethereum, uh, Dorsey's still very much in the Bitcoin camp. He defended some criticism that Bitcoin might be too slow to build applications on top of. He says, yes, it's slower, but slower things tend to be more secure as well. And finally, they got into Square's focus on Bitcoin and some of the other open source projects that weren't guaranteed to work at the time. Cash App, he says, was one of those. He said people within Square wanted to kill that project. They thought it was reckless and irresponsible. Flash forward, Cash App now makes up about half of Square's, or Block now, uh, (laughs) that company's revenue. They are taking the same approach with Bitcoin and open source projects. They're experimenting with things like wallets, a decentralized exchange, and Bitcoin mining. Kelly.
0: Are there any implications, you think, for Twitter here?
12: For Twitter, you know, if they're, they don't seem to be leaning into Bitcoin as much. It sounds like if they had pivoted their business model and Jack Dorsey was still leading that company as, and has said, as he really is doing with Block, that that is, you know, the goal of the company, one of his personal goals, it's experimenting and using things like the Lightning Network, but it doesn't seem like they're really going to move away from ad revenue or take sort of a, an open sourced Bitcoin focused model. So it seems like sort of an idealistic uh, in some ways, backwards looking view yeah. of Twitter, but or uh, next doesn't project. seem to have near term.
0: Okay, thank you. Kate Rooney <laughs> with all the reporting for us. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.